I'm just going to do awkward housekeeping and hopefully not tear apart the stage. Like, whoa. Just play a soundtrack in your head while I do this. <laughs> Whatever you like. It says a lot about you, what you're like humming in your head right now. So nice little psychiatric evaluation. Um, I'm Chris. If I don't know you, I'm sorry. There was like a thing for the past year that kept me from meeting a lot of people. I don't know about you. It's fine. It's a thing. Um, Background, I am the supportive spouse of the family's pastor here at Kingdom Vineyard. Oh, Sarah, thank you. It's been a while since I've used a microphone. Yeah? Yeah? Thank you. Sarah, always with the top tips. Um, my wife is the family's pastor here at KV. I'm her supportive spouse. I'm really happy to be here. I'm also, uh, for, depending on who you ask, either from the best or worst part of America, because I'm a Southern Californian. So... I apologize in in advance. Uh, Jesse once uh, lambasted my wife for saying leisure instead of leisure. It's going to be worse tonight. I'm just warning you now. Let's just get that out of the way. You know, I'm going to use a lot of words and not in the way they're defined. Just go with the tone. That's probably the safest bet. I may say gnarly. I may say sick. I don't mean to. It's not on the page. The Holy Spirit gets me excited and I speak like I speak. And if, if you're Scottish, English, Welsh, Northern Irish, Irish, or European sensibilities get offended by that, I apologize. Nothing intended. That's just me being me. Um, we're going to read a passage tonight that is, is a challenging passage. And uh, before I invite Andrew up to read, I just want to say, um, let it be challenging. I think sometimes we read scripture and we really quickly try to wrestle it into something comfortable or a happy narrative when it's specifically supposed to be a difficult thing to hear, that we're supposed to hear it and mourn or weep or struggle, and so as, as you listen to it, don't try to rush ahead into, well, let me make sense of that. Um, it, if it affects you, that's okay. Um, also, for the sake of time, um, as this passage gets read, there is a long list of nations that's normally a part of this passage. We've edited them out for the sake of time, but it is a very interesting historical look into the biblical account of all peoples, and I'd encourage you to read that on your own for your own study, but if you notice that the verses just jump in the end, if you, as you read along in your Bible, that's intentional. Um, we're not trying to pull a fast one. We're just going to bring it along. So I'll bring up Andrew now to read. Genesis 9, 18. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backwards and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. 
He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years. And then he died. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. And to the end of that chapter. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. Thanks, Andrew. So that's not only a, a challenging passage on its own, it's, it, it's also a, a painful passage because it has a history of abuse as applied by the church. Um, th- that specific passage was, was applied by Christians in America in the 18th and 19th century to justify slavery as a system, to say that there was a biblical mandate for it, to say that certain people deserve to be cursed, and as a result, by the mid-1800s, approximately four million people were in chains. It was applied in Rwanda by Belgian and uh, German colonialists who decided to create a new system of categories for the people they encountered, referenced that passage and said some deserve to be cursed, others to be great, and as a result, installed a system of tension that erupted into genocidal massacre in 1994. A million men, women, and children slaughtered over the application of a passage that was misinterpreted in the first place. And and I say that to bring a healthy level of of caution as we read passages like this, because biblical interpretation doesn't happen in a vacuum. Whether whether we're teaching or whether we're just reading and sharing, when when we make these conclusions and then we apply them to the world, we often extend harm through our willingness to interpret in a way that the text just doesn't give us. There is nothing in the text that justifies those types of interpretations. And the church has been reckoning with that abuse for some time. In fact, 20 years after the massacre, the Pope actually went to Rwanda to ask the nation for forgiveness on behalf of Christians who have participated in the violence. If we are going to come to a text like this one, we have to come in with with caution, with reverence for the Lord, and a willingness to not go beyond what the text is giving us. That, that's a sober way to start a sermon, and I, and I promise you that's not where we're going to land, but I think it's important because if we just read these passages, if we look for who's the example, who's the person I'm supposed to imitate, if we go too quickly into what's my lesson here, often we extend and we apply and we do something so far from the text that we've lost the plot altogether. And I think that's important for us tonight because I believe that the Spirit does want to speak through this text. The Spirit does want to tell us what he has for us. He wants to move and to heal and to restore, but we have to listen and walk in step with God and trust that he's going to lead. Um, I, I don't know if you have this reaction when you read this passage, but this is a shockingly relatable passage. This is the first time we've been reading through Genesis as a church, and to, up to this point, it all has a feeling of something mythic and epic and something like a fable. I mean, you're hearing about boats and massive floods and talking serpents and mysterious humans with superhuman strength. It doesn't sound like our world. And then we land here in Genesis 9, and we hear about a son offending a father, a father cursing a grandson, 
on a family torn apart and it suddenly feels very, very relatable. Maybe it doesn't feel relatable for you, but maybe you know someone who's gone through this, but family drama, family turmoil is often the most deeply affecting struggle in this world because it's right there in our face. It affects our families, our brothers, our sisters, our parents, ourselves. And I think it's okay to feel that. I think it's okay to come to this passage and say, God, this just, this just reminds me of everything that's wrong in my world. This reminds me of my family. I think that's an okay place to start because if we can't enter into the Bible as people who find our pain in its pages, we miss the fact that God came to redeem that pain through his son. He's not trying to create a comfortable story where things seem sort of easy and then things get slightly better. He's trying to look evil straight in the face and say, I came to bring life where there was death. It's incredibly important for us as we look at it. So think about this as we look through the passage. Noah's family has survived the flood. They've been reestablished. They've been blessed by God. He said, you are made in my image. He's given them a new home, a new way to establish themselves. And then sometime later, Noah plants a vineyard, gets drunk, and lies naked in his tent. He's exposed and he's vulnerable. And that's really all the text gives us. It doesn't say whether he did this on purpose, whether he knew what would happen if he drank wine. It's just not there. We just know that he's in a compromised state. Then Ham enters, his son, and the text is still vague. We just don't know what happens in the tent. But we know that Shem and Japheth instead walk in backwards, choosing not to look at their father, which according to ancient Near Eastern customs was far more respectful, to drop a covering on him to try and prevent further humiliation. They try not to make the situation worse, in essence, to respect their father in the way that they can. Now, this isn't to say, when I say this, this isn't a sort of find the example in the text. I'm not trying to say, so there you go. There's who you're supposed to imitate. What I'm trying to say is this is a matter of complex family dynamics where you have different interactions with a father figure and different outcomes. Noah awakens, and he chooses to curse and to bless. Shem and Japheth fall under the blessing, and Ham's son Canaan is cursed. Now, this leaves everything frustratingly vague. We don't know why Noah chooses to curse Canaan. It doesn't tell us. We don't know what really happened. And in fact, this has so bothered people that there is a mountain of ink spilled over trying to figure out what actually happened in the tent, which I think is a natural human thing to do, but entirely beside the point. It is too easy to read the Bible and analyze before we are affected. It's too natural to dissect the text rather than mourning the pain of the story it tells. Because when we do so, we perform an autopsy without ever grieving the loss. We disconnect ourselves from what is really true in the story and from allowing ourselves to be troubled by what we see. See, up to this point, like I said, Genesis feels removed from our reality, but suddenly the story is becoming human and relatable. A father is compromised, a son has offended him, there's curses within the family, there's conflict and strife, and from the text, it extends far beyond the borders of the family. There are global implications. The blessings and curses that are in this story frame how the nations will grow and change and come to be. This is not an isolated family drama. It is a seismic event but it feels very human. It's also very familiar if we look at the larger story. We hear humanity blessed by God. We hear humanity as bearing his image. We hear humanity turning on itself. Noah eats a fruit, is naked as a result, and suffers shame. This sounds like Adam and Eve all over again, except this time, there's no one to blame outside the human family. 
There's no serpent to point to. Humanity is acting all on its own. In fact, Noah's decision to bless and to curse is a decision on his part to do something entirely God-like because God is silent at this moment. We don't know why, but when we read the text, we don't hear God coming in to say, here's how I judge what Ham did, and here's how I judge who Noah is, and here's how I respond to the intoxication, and here's what I would say should be done. Instead, Noah is acting in a God-like way, choosing to bless and to curse, and the outcomes are devastating because he is proclaiming slavery over his grandson. Just think about that for a moment. Not in an ancient text, but in a relatable way. If you were in a room where your father cursed your son or where your grandfather cursed his grandson, when you watched that happen, think about how that would affect you. For me, and I don't know everyone's story, but for me, I've seen far too much of that. I've seen cursing in families. I've seen families torn apart by offense. And I've seen the wreckage in the aftermath. And I think in moments like that, we have to cry out and say, why God? Why? Because I think that's what God longs for us to do, is in the wreckage, turn to him and say, come help, deliver us from evil, as Shin so brilliantly illustrated the other day. See, blessing and cursing are odd concepts for many of us. We hear blessing and cursing, and for a lot of modern sensibilities, and I don't know everyone's story, but I'm guessing that you didn't walk down the street today and have someone shout at you, curses, for not shopping at my store, you will not have a harvest this year. I'm, I'm, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know what you went by. But blessing and cursing are key to understanding the full picture of what God is doing in the entire narrative of the Bible. So what are blessings and curses? What are blessings and curses? Sorry. Uh, I like how John Golden Gate breaks it down. He says this, blessing means being fruitful, experiencing fulfillment, and knowing fullness of life. Cursing means fruitless, experiencing disappointment, and finding oneself in the realm of death. It is typical of the Bible to be more ready to talk about God's blessing than about God's cursing. So to bless someone is to declare over them life in all its fullness. To curse is to declare death. Now, if you're not starting to hear something emerge from this text, we're starting to hear the beginnings of what Jesus came to do because John 10.10 said, that Jesus came to bring life and bring it abundantly, that the thief came to steal, kill, and destroy. It sets blessings and curses right next to each other and says this is the story that Jesus is telling. See, in the larger story of Genesis 1 to 11 and in the Old and New Testament, God is radically committed to bless humanity. And curses, when mentioned, are so minimal in comparison that they don't even come close. To read the Bible and see God as anything but a blessing God is to miss the big story that he's telling. It's so much greater that if you read through the entire Bible and came out saying, I think God wants me to curse people, probably missed a lot. Maybe you should read again. That's important to remember because we think about these things, but we forget that people read the Bible and decided to curse. And that's why it's so important for us as a community to stand together and say, no, what is the whole text saying? What's this whole story revealing? Who are we? Who is God? And who are we called to be? See, James 3 tells us that we bless our Lord and Father, and then we curse humans who are made in his image and says this should not be. It makes clear that cursing is not a human endeavor, not something we're supposed to do, because it ties the image of God to every person and says if you really understand who God is, you're right in blessing him, and you are woefully wrong in cursing anyone. Doesn't matter what they've done or who they are, if you're cursing, you misunderstand 
who they are in God's sight because God values all people. It's clear in the Bible. If you have been told a gospel that says he values some and not others, I want to tell you tonight you can be free of that because Jesus proclaims a better word that says he came for the entire world, for all people, for every tongue, tribe, and nation. But humanity, sadly, like Noah, is far too inclined to wield power that it was never meant to hold. Noah cursing is like every act of justice that we take into our own hands when we wield violence or power or oppression and we try to justify it in the name of us setting the world right on our own terms. That's real and that's relatable. And it starts young. You want to see cursing happen real time? Go to a preschool or a nursery. I'm ser- the first thing children do when they are offended is try to turn the offense back on the person who offended them. If you haven't seen this before, it's this natural narcissistic impulse to say, you did me wrong, I'm going to do you wrong right back. And as parents, we try to train them away from this. No, 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 yeah. Yes, I understand you were kicked. You don't kick right back, and then you don't dump a dump truck on their head. That's wrong. You've gone too far. I'm not talking about my own personal parenting experience. This could be any child. (laughs) But humanity's impulses are naturally self-interested and far too often at the expense of others. As Sarah did such a good job highlighting last week, Genesis shows humanity descending into its worst impulses. And as a result, oppression, violence, abuse of women, slavery are looming large in this story. But the evil that's prevalent there does not have the final word. Cursing happens when we let our offenses drive us. It's all we have. If we're offended, if we're hurt, if we're wounded, often I put it right back on you is all we know to do. Because it's what feels like we have a level of control, of agency, of safety. We try for justice, but we are powerless to break the cycle of injustice we find ourselves in. We're not meant to do it. No matter how terrible the impact of human curses, though, no matter how imperfect human justice, God is always speaking a better word. And he did in Jesus. And this is where we turn the corner. So if you've been a little bit tired of cursing and curses and evil, this is where it gets good. So, Jesus Christ, who the Bible refers to as the living word, is central to God's story of blessing for all people. Passages like Galatians and John make it clear that Jesus conquered and overcame evil, that he reversed the curse on humanity, that his life, death, and resurrection changes the story of blessing and cursing we are part of. It renders curses powerless. And I think there are two very important passages for understanding that. So the first happens in Luke. In Luke 3 to 4, the story that we hear is that Jesus is baptized, that the Spirit rests on him, that the Father calls him his son, that he's led into the wilderness to overcome evil, and when he comes back, he announces his ministry. And right in the middle of that passage, we're told that he is the direct descendant of Noah, of Adam, and ultimately of God. We're told that Jesus is right part of this painful story, that he is the answer to the line that he's a part of, that he is blessing where there was cursing. Jesus then announces the the entire shape of his ministry when he reads in the synagogue, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and the regaining of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection overcomes the power of curses in our world. The curse on Canaan for slavery is broken in Christ as favor is released. And the passage he's reading 
is citing God's command for Israel to regularly release the captives. But he's declaring once and for all it's done. That what was cursed is now free of the curse. You see, he's come to redeem, to restore, to heal, to set free. He takes on our curses that we might receive his blessings. He gave his life for us, conquered death, rose again, and he invites us to join in overcoming evil, knowing that someday, according to Revelation 22, there will no longer be any curse. And that's incredibly good news. The other important passage for considering blessings and curses is in Matthew 5, when Jesus says, Blessings on the poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven is yours. Blessing on the mourners, you're going to be comforted. Blessings on the meek, you're going to inherit the earth. Blessings on people who hunger and thirst for God's justice, you're going to be satisfied. Blessings on the merciful, you'll receive mercy yourselves. Blessings on the pure in heart, you will see God. Blessings on the peacemakers, you'll be called God's children. Blessings on people who are persecuted because of God's way, the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. Blessings on you when people slander you and persecute you and say all kinds of wicked things about you falsely because of me. Celebrate and rejoice. There's a great reward for you in heaven. That's how they persecuted the prophets who went before you. So when we read that, what we realize in the new kingdom that Jesus is releasing, blessings are not self-promoting. They wash feet and are with those who suffer. They're not self-actualizing. They radically depend on Jesus to do something they can't do on their own. And they're not distant from suffering. They're right there with those who suffer in the midst of their pain, proclaiming the hope of Jesus' kingdom. In Luke's version of the sermon, he follows up the blessings to say, be careful not to put stock in your privilege because it's gone far too quickly. As if to say, the blessings that seem tangible for you are not as strong as the hope, life, and freedom of participating in the life of Jesus. In going out where it's uncomfortable, in blessing those who need blessing, instead of staying where you are comfortable in going where those are not. We participate in God's blessings when we are near to the poor in spirit, when we mourn and we comfort mourners, when we are meek, when we hunger and thirst for justice, when we express mercy, when we're pure in heart, when we make peace and experience persecution. I think that last point's especially important because it points to something we have to remember when reading Noah's story. We're not meant to curse even when we suffer persecution. We release blessings by taking on a posture that no one else would take because it runs counter to the way that blessings and curses work in the world. Often when people declare themselves blessed, they mean that they're in a favored or comfortable position. Those things are inherently wrong, but they are far too often gained through self-interest, self-promotion, self-protection, and lack of concern for others. Jesus ties blessing to being radically for those who need help and care and love, to laying down our lives, including for our enemies and those who persecute us. And I want to be very clear here, I'm not advocating for a lack of accountability or a removal of justice. Those things are central to God's kingdom. What I'm saying is that it is one thing to see in Jesus perfect peace, justice, accountability, to know that he guides us in reconciliation that holds the oppressor accountable while establishing justice and overcoming death. And it's another thing to water down justice or accountability in the name of cheap forgiveness that tramples victims. To follow Jesus is to make peace and join in his work of overcoming evil and join in the dismantling of injustice in the world, to become agents of blessing, it's also important to remember that it is not our role to wield curses, to hand others over to death when injustice or persecution happen. 
to curse takes on a godlike posture that we're not meant to take on, extends Noah's act, and joins with the same type of attitude that wreaks havoc on the world and has done so, so far too many times. So the question I feel like the Spirit's asking us tonight is very simple. Are you a person of blessing or a person of cursing? And I don't want you to just answer that right off the bat and say, well, you know, this is where I'm at. I want you to think for a second because what I mean by that is this. Number one, do you feel cursed? If we define cursed as death and lack, do you feel that death and lack are greater in your life than the fullness of God? Do you feel like oppression, humiliation, abuse, and pain are cycles you can't get out of? I don't know your stories, but I do know that Jesus longs to step into the midst of them and bring healing and bring hope and bring justice and bring mercy to see you in the midst of what you suffered and to say that he values you and he knows you because his love for you has such immense value that he doesn't look away at what you're in and he longs to draw you through it and out of it. Do you curse yourself? Now, maybe we don't curse ourselves in the way that I've described in the biblical text, but maybe we think that we're doomed. Or maybe our self-speak is so negative that we treat ourselves as if we're not worthy of life and hope. Do you believe that you're hopeless or deserve a hopeless outcome? Do your circumstances make you think that Jesus has no ability to come in and rescue and redeem and save? Jesus said that he loved us with everything. He gave his life for us. His love is stronger than the grave and he longs to declare a better word over any sense of curseness you feel. He also says, love your neighbor as yourself, which if you are cursing yourself, your standard of love is so low that you'll never be able to love anyone else. You'll live out of cursing. You'll see yourself hopeless and the world is hopeless and everyone around you is hopeless. Do you curse others? I mean, maybe you don't openly curse them, but do you do it implicitly? Do you judge them? Do you look at them and say, there's no way God could redeem that? Remember, the standard of life in the kingdom is not how good things look, but it's resurrection. So the worst and the most dead and the most vile is still a place where Jesus can bring justice and peace and hope, but only he can do that. Do you leave people in cycles of pain? Do you look at others and say, there's no way they want the blessings of Jesus. There's no way they want to talk about God. Do you, do you think, I don't even want to get involved? Maybe we don't have a culture of outright cursing, but maybe we curse people in the second degree by abandoning them to the very places that Jesus longs for us to enter. Maybe by refusing to pray for them or by not asking the Holy Spirit to lead us, we avoid being a part of the blessings that God longs to extend from our community into this entire region. Maybe there are people who are desperate to be free of these cycles who are crying out, God, will you help me? And I feel like I'm supposed to tell the story really quick. I had a friend who was in Mexico and she, lived, she was living in Mexico at the time and she said, God, I'll go wherever you go. I'll do whatever you do. And God said, I want you to go hug that woman right there. And she went, that is the most absurd thing I've ever heard in my life. I'm not gonna do it. She heard it again, go hug that woman. She was like, that's the most absurd thing I've ever heard in my life. I'm not gonna do it. It's so uncomfortable. And he said, go hug that woman. And in the region she was in, it was culturally inappropriate. It was odd. She walks up to the woman, much older than her, and says, can I hug you? And the woman breaks down sobbing and says, why? And she tells her. And she says, I was crying out to God, saying, if you care about me at all, send me a sign. Far too often, our own hurts 
for an abusive gospel or bad Christianity or some mobilization of the Bible that was unhealthy keeps us from going out and being the living embodiment of a new kingdom and a new reality that says Jesus is announcing a better word of blessing. So do you feel Jesus? Do you feel the Spirit moving on you to live as an agent of blessing? Do you feel called to join with the Spirit as he heals and overcomes towards fruitful, hopeful, resurrected life? Do you feel God calling out of your comfort zone? The invitation tonight for everyone is one of repentance. If you feel like you deserve curses, you don't. If you're cursing yourself, you don't have to. If you're avoiding blessing people, you can begin. And if he's calling you, you can go. But that, recalls, that requires a change in mind and a change of heart that draws us out. So what I want to do is I just want you to close your eyes. I'm going to shift into ministry time. And I just want to read this over you. When Jesus announced his ministry, when he associated himself with humanity, when he was, when he was said that he was part of the human line, and he said, this is what I came here to do, he read from Isaiah 61. And I want to read that tonight. And I want to read it. And as I do, I want you to ask Jesus, ask the Spirit to read it over you. So you hear it as a promise. You hear it as a declaration. You hear it as a blessing that you get to partake in. And then I want to let the Spirit do his thing, because it's way better than anything I can say. So I'm just going to read this. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance." And so you will inherit a double portion in your land and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. Will you stand with me as I pray over you? You can stay in a posture of prayer. You can let the Spirit continue to move, but let's stand because we're going to shift in our, in our ministry. If you feel like you fall into the, one of those categories and you want to shift, if you want to see God move, I just want you to put your hand over your heart right where you're at. If you feel like you want to be free of curses or cycles of cursing, if you want to be the kind of person who no longer withholds the blessings that God has given you to give away, or if you feel the Spirit stirring you to go. I just want you right where you're at to put your hand on your heart. This is just about you and God. This is not something that has to be for everyone, but I want you to join with me in asking the Spirit and asking Jesus to do what only they can do, to release curses, to restore blessing, and to send. Jesus, I just ask you, to make us people of blessing. Where we have cursed, we repent. Or where we have held blessing, we repent. Where we have hidden love, Lord God, let us become people who love, not with words, but with actions. Where we've been afraid, give us the boldness of your spirit to go. 
where we have held back from being a blessing that goes outside and beyond and goes to the meek and the hurting and the poor, those in chains and those who are oppressed. Lord God, send us. Lord God, let the blessings that you give us as you move with your spirit be the blessings we give away. They'd be too much to hold and we give them. Holy Spirit, I ask you to come and start moving. I ask you to start moving on this place. I ask you to start restoring and healing, Lord God, where there are hurts from a generation of curses, that they would be restored into places of healing and blessing. I pray that you would begin to stir up faith for what you want people to do. I pray that stories like Alistair's would be just the beginning of many, and I pray that you would start to heal tonight. The Holy Spirit, you would heal because cursings leave a stain, they leave a mark, they leave a bruise, they leave a wound. And I pray that you would begin to heal in our hearts as you promise us justice that only you can deliver. I pray these things in your name, Lord.